Well, as I turn to, or invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 2, I'll invite you to stand. This is a long chapter, and boy, I realized I was biting off probably more than I could chew for one sermon, but I'm going to give it my best, uh, and we'll, we'll see what we can do here. But I'd like to read the first 23 verses, and then we'll, uh, and then we'll kind of take the rest of the chapter as we go. But as we do this, would you just pray this prayer with me? Lord, this is your word to me today. May it be a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Help me to hide this word in my heart that I might not sin against you. May I pray it in, read it through, live it out, and pass it on. Amen. Amen. Daniel chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have to cut you into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time, because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except for the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon, so the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. 
He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. May God add his blessing to his word. You can be seated. Well, if you were with us last week, we looked at the opening chapter of Daniel, and you'll be reminded that, of course, we saw a group of young men along with the rest of the nation of Israel who were deprived of their homes in Jerusalem and forced into exile in the city of Babylon. And as a result, they were expected, these young men, to become Babylonians themselves. King Nebuchadnezzar had taken these these young men who were smart and cultured, and he insisted that they become more like the Babylonians, and so he even changed their names and taught them the language, the culture, even the religion of Babylon. But we saw that Daniel and his friends resolved to be different. They were the people of God, and they insisted in their heart of hearts that that was not going to change. And so they chose to live in such a way to demonstrate that difference And we see that God blessed them as a result of that resolve. Now, having said that, I think it's important we step back and we realize that unlike most of the other Old Testament books, Daniel, the book was written outside of the context and confines of Israel. Most of it, in fact, is written in Aramaic. That's the language of Babylon. Hebrew being the the language of Israel. And so it's interesting to me as we approach this book that very much, it is very much about how we can live wisely in a place where God is not respected, in a culture where everyone around you lives by different values. And sometimes they're going to look at you not only as odd, but maybe as the enemy a threat even to their lifestyle, to their current regime. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, there's a a key verse, and I think it's a beautiful one to, to begin this morning. It says, those who have wisdom will shine like the bright expanse of heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You see, this book is not just about how to survive in this kind of environment. It is about how we are to be a witness there. In fact, how we are to lead many to righteousness, to the only righteous one, to Jesus Christ. And listen, folks, maybe you haven't caught on yet, so let me be as clear as I can be. Everyone in this room is living in Babylon. First Peter describes the church as exile, strangers living in a strange land. Babylon surrounds us. And just like Daniel, we face the pressures conforming to Babylon. And the challenge before us is how do we live out in a culture that, that we've been assigned to? God has put us here. This is where we are until God decides to take us to another country. We don't want Babylon to corrupt us. 
but we're meant to influence the city. And so when it comes to living in a hostile culture, many Christians choose one of two things, either assimilation or separation. Assimilation, well, I think you probably know what that means. It means that you gradually just look like and act like everyone on, where their values become your values and your lifestyle really imitates and looks like theirs. You conform completely. There basically is no difference between you and Babylon. Now, of course, on the other side of that spectrum, separation, it's the opposite. You see the world is evil, and so you come out from among them and be ye separate. Maybe some in this room grew up in a Christian environment where you had a Christian version of everything, you know, uh, you, you, you went to a Christian school and you only listened to Christian music and, and you had Christian comedians and you watched Christian cartoons. I remember we used to even give out uh, in, in our church here shepherd's guides. Do you remember the shepherd's guide? It was basically a yellow page. Of course, I was thinking, wait a minute, people don't know what yellow pages are today. It, it was a directory of the Christian businesses around you, and that's where you were supposed to shop. And so we, we'd make that very clear. Sometimes we get the impression the more isolated we are from the world, the more faithful. The, the weirder we are, the more spiritualer we are. Now, I would say, as, as I would look at the landscape of our church, and I might be wrong here, but the challenge for most of us in this room is probably leaning toward assimilation. That's just my guess. Because really, how are our lives all that much different from our neighbors who don't believe? Think about it. Okay, I'll give you this. Maybe we get up a little earlier on Sunday morning and attend church for an hour or two. That's different, I suppose. But then I think about it, how many who call themselves Christians aren't even willing to do that? Maybe we give a little more. But that's not always the case either. And, and I've come to believe that, listen, a difference that is no different is no different. It certainly is not going to make any difference. When the exile happened, there were a bunch of false prophets that began to, to, to declare that, listen, and, and stay with me here as we think about this, but they declared, look, you people have been given this time of exile, but resist it. Babylon is so bad, you stay away from it. If you have to live there, keep to yourself. Stay away. And if you pray anything about Babylon, make sure you pray against it. Make sure that you're praying that God would destroy it and it would be over. Those were the false prophets. But do you know the prophet Jeremiah? You've probably heard of him. He was a true prophet and he had a message from God and he said that God's will for the Israelites at that moment was not to stay separate from the culture of Babylon, not to assimilate completely, but in fact to infiltrate it 
and influence it. In fact, he, he wrote a letter to the exiles of Babylon. It's recorded in Jeremiah 29. Now, of course, when we think of Jeremiah 29, what verse do we think of? 29.11, for I know the plans for you, declares the Lord. But he says something a little further in that chapter. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says in verse 5, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So the important thing to see here is that as we live in exiles in this hostile culture, listen, we're not called to huddle up into a small group singing kumbaya and waiting for Jesus to come and take us out of this trailer park of the world. We are, in fact, called to be in Babylon, seek the well-being of the city, pray for it, and so our strategy must not be assimilation, and it must not be separation, but God's determination for his people is that we commit to transformation in our culture. That when it thrives, we're going to thrive. And so Daniel and his friends, they take on Babylonian names, speak the Babylonian language, work in the Babylonian palace system. But they have decided to do so as faithful servants of God. And what I want you to see is, as we get further into this story, we're going to see how that resolve helps them transform the kingdom. Now, we've read chapter 2. Interesting story. It opens up with King Nebuchadnezzar waking up in a cold sweat. He's had a dream, maybe a series of dreams, and it is so ominous, he'd call it a nightmare. It unsettles him to the core. And so he calls forth his wise men and all his enchanters and magicians and whatnot, and he calls them into counsel, and he says, I want you to explain this dream to me. Now, you've got to realize that they've got all kinds of books of interpretation. They've done this before. This is what they're good at. You know, I've discovered in my house, I have to be careful my wife uh, took some kind of psychology class in college where they, where they did dream interpretation, you know. They did all of that. And so every time I tell her about my dream, I, I, I get into trouble because she looks it up and, well, this means that and this is what's going on. And it just, so, so I've learned to keep my dreams to myself. I don't tell her that anymore. But these Babylonian wise men, they, they had these books, you know, a cow means this, a bird means that, puff the magic dragon means this, or appearing before the royal court in your underwear, it must mean something like this. But here's the thing. You notice here, and some of you caught on quickly, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't just say, interpret the dream. He says, tell me the dream. 
Maybe he couldn't remember it. How many times have you had a dream? You knew it was something like this or that, but, but, but it unsettled you. It just bothered me. But as much as I'm paying you guys, you should be all able to tell me the dream and interpret it. And of course, these guys look at him and say, King, you've got to be out of your mind. Now, they're a little more respectful than that, but King, nobody on earth can do that. And so he threatens to cut their bodies into pieces and make their homes into rubble if they don't do as he's commanded. In fact, this makes the king so furious, he decides to execute the whole lot of them, all the wise men of Babylon. And he's thinking, listen, I've invested all this time, all this money, all this trust in you guys, and you aren't doing me anything that I expect. So this put Daniel and his friends at risk. But I want to pick up the story in verse 24. It says, Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed, to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. So Daniel gets this audience with the king, and the king says, Okay, are you able to tell me my dream and interpret it? Look at verse 27. Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. I want you to stop right there and just imagine what Nebuchadnezzar is feeling. Nobody can do this. He's getting furious. He thinks, what is this guy doing here? Let's execute him right now. But verse 28 says this. But there is a God in heaven who explains mysteries. But there is a God in heaven. And I just want to camp there for a moment. Because if you really want the, the theme of the entire book of Daniel, I think it's found right here. Know this truth. But there is a God in heaven and boy, do we need to be reminded of that today. Listen, folks, yeah, we're living in Babylon. We might feel at times that God has forgotten us. We might feel like, well, what's the point of trying to live differently? Does it make any difference at all? But know this. There is a God in heaven. And sometimes like, like Nebuchadnezzar, we come to the end of all our human strategies and they fall to pieces. But there is a God in heaven. And I want to tell you, that changes everything. When you know that truth, when you live in that truth, when you understand that truth, it changes everything. Maybe you've got a relationship and you have tried to make it work. You're trying to fix what is broken and it's all failed and you feel like there's no hope. Well, I've got good news. There's a God in heaven and his power picks up where yours ends. You've tried to, to make your kid turn out right 
You've told them everything. You've, you've shared everything. You've tried everything you know to, to help him make the right decisions. There's nothing left for you to do. Yeah. But there is a God in heaven. You've tried to overcome that addiction. You, you, you've tried to find that missing piece and you've failed so many times. You wonder what the point is. But there's a huge but involved here. But there's a God in heaven. That disease that seemed so devastating, so final. Over the past year, it's taken away so much. What's the point? But there's a God in heaven. And that changes everything. You're disappointed in politics, amen? Dismayed by our leaders, disgusted with the corruption. Democrats disappoint, Republicans disappoint. And newsflash, if you were put in power, you'd disappoint me too. But there's a God in heaven. And I just want us to reflect on that this morning. Speaking of disappointments, let's talk about you because the reality is, if you think about it, no one has disappointed you more than you. No one has broken more promises, lied to you than you have. But there's a God in heaven. And I just, I just find courage and solace in knowing that. And by the way, this God in heaven says, I love you. He's for you and not against you. He's compassionate and forgiving and powerful and wants to bless his people. And so that changes everything. That's why the psalmist can say, those who look to him are radiant. Listen, you, you need to know, and you know this, I can't do it for you. I'm a pastor, I love you, I will try to do the best, but all I can do is point up. There's a God in heaven, and you are not him. There is a God, and he's good. And so Daniel continues, and he tells the king what the wise men could not. King Nebuchadnezzar, you saw a giant statue and his head was made of gold and the chest and arms were made of silver and the belly was made of bronze and the legs were iron and the ten toes of the feet were made a mixture of, of iron and clay. And while you were admiring the statue, a rock came out of heaven and shattered the statue in pieces. And Nebuchadnezzar, his eyes light up and he says, that's it, that was the dream. You got it. And then Daniel moves into interpretation. And folks, I, I could spend a good hour easily on talking about the statue and how the gold represented Nebuchadnezzar and the arms and the chest. They represented Persia who came along and eventually conquered Babylon. But listen, the point isn't what exactly are the ten toes representing made of iron and clay. 
The point is, is what is God saying to all human kingdoms? See, some of us are made this way, and, and, and I love you all, but, but you got re- your charts ready and you got your list and you want to figure out which politician is the Antichrist and which, which, uh, how, how, does the, uh, how does the vaccine mean that we're taking the mark of the beast or all that kind of stuff. And, and we're not going to go there I'm, I, because we're missing the point. The most important part of this dream is not the statue itself. It's what happens to it. Verse 34 and 35 say, While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. In other words, all this stuff just became dust, gone. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Verse 44 says, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but itself will. It will itself endure forever. So you see what the rock is? It's the kingdom of God. That's what the text says. But in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus himself declares him to be the rock. And he says in Luke 20, verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. I want you to think about that, the image and what Jesus is talking about. The stone, well, it was made without human hands. I, I looked to Jesus and I realized we didn't figure that out. God would do it all. He was born of a virgin. Jesus was made without human agency. Second, I love this. The rock, if you think about it, is the least valuable substance in this dream. Granite is much less valuable than gold and silver and bronze and iron. You know, your favorite part of the Charlie Brown Halloween special is when the kids are trick-or-treating. Remember, they're going out and they're getting their things and they say, hey, I got a lollipop. I got a candy bar. I got a popcorn ball. And Charlie Brown comes along and he says, I got a rock. Yet this rock came with the power of God. And so it shatters that stuff that's all more expensive and precious. Now, Jesus didn't come with all the bling and the shine of the world. He was poor. He never owned a home. He never raised an army. Yet he came with the power and authority of the living God. And you think about it, yeah, this rock, it started out so small, but it grew. 
into a gigantic mountain that fills the whole earth. You know, when Jesus ascended into heaven, think about what he left. He left some disciples in an upper room huddled together in fear. In Matthew 13, he said his kingdom would start small like a mustard seed. Multiplied, however, it would cover the face of the earth. When Jesus left, he left those disciples in the other upper room. He didn't leave an army or a fortress like Nebuchadnezzar or Alexander or Muhammad. Yet that small movement today has swelled into the largest religious movement in history. It literally covers the face of the earth. You know, I love this stuff, but the church is growing the fastest today in Latin America and Africa and Asia. In fact, did you know that two-thirds of all self-identifying Christians today live in either Latin America, Africa, or Asia? Two-thirds. And by 2050, experts who see these trends say it'll be 80%. 80%. There are more practicing Christians in Africa today than all of Europe combined. More Christians will attend church in Kenya than in Canada today. Uganda has more Anglican churches and Christians than Great Britain or Canada and the U.S. combined. And Anglican means English. Ghana has more Presbyterians than Scotland has. And Presbyterians started there. Brazil now sends out more missionaries overseas than either Britain or Canada. Unbelievable. Truth is, <laughs> we talk about a villager in Africa who has never heard the name of Jesus. Statistically, you're more likely to run into a born-again Christian in Malawi than you are in Montreal. That's where we are today. Asia. Since 1970, there were no legally functioning churches in the country of China. And God laughs. <laughs> you try to stop me. Today, the number of practicing Christians in China exceed that of those in the United States. By 2050, China will be a majority Christian country. People say, well, Christianity is a Western thing and we shouldn't try to impose it on everyone else. Are you kidding me? Christianity is not a Western thing. It started in the Middle East, it came to the West, but now it is moving to every corner of the world, just like Nebuchadnezzar dreamed it would. And this is why I think that matters. Because this is our core message to Babylon, and this is a message we have to understand this is our witness. This is our testimony. God sent a rock to earth called Jesus who will destroy every false kingdom erected by man. Whether those are large geopolitical kingdoms of this world or independent little kingdoms in our own lives. I can build a church, a building, you can build a business, give your life to it. It could be a great thing. But someday it's going to be dust, crushed, gone. 
But here's the thing. Are, are you with me? That's not really why Jesus comes. He came first and foremost to save. You know why he gave this message to Nebuchadnezzar? Mercy. He gives it to us for the same reason. So we will lay down our kingdoms and say, Jesus, I want your kingdom to come. I want your will to be done. You see, I always have this temptation. I put my trust in my abilities, in my bank account, in my business. But Lord, you are the only rightful king of my life. Not Joe Biden, not Donald Trump, not my business, not my bank account. I want you to rule. And you know, at the end of this chapter, King Nebuchadnezzar is humbled. And he praises the God of heaven. Now, you'll find out soon enough that the lure of Babylon is great and he slides down pretty quickly and we have the same temptation but Jesus Christ came not to judge us but to die on a cross to save us to be a rock of refuge and salvation upon which we can build our lives the chief cornerstone upon which we can build but if we don't choose that that rock will crush us. He gives us that message out of mercy. So folks, I have one question for us this morning. What kingdom are you trusting in? Who is God in your life? Will you pray with me? Father, I'm humbled this morning as we've opened these pages and we've looked at this dream and we've considered the implications of what it means in our lives. Father, how silly it is when we think that we can build a kingdom that will last. Lord, Babylon is no more Persia is no more the great the great uh, Roman Empire is no more the Third Reich which was going to last a thousand years is no more someday the United States will just be part of a story of history but Lord your kingdom is forever and ever and so Lord I pray that I would submit to your kingdom today, to your rulership. And that, Lord, while I live here in Babylon, there would be no question in my mind or the lives of the people who know me that Jesus is my Lord. And that, Lord, I would be about seeing that others would come to know that truth, that there is a God in heaven, and he's good and kind and compassionate, full of mercy while there is time that Lord you would allow us to be a people who eagerly and honestly pray 
that your kingdom would come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I thank you, Lord, that you love us so very, very much. May this truth be sealed in our hearts. I ask this in Jesus' name.